2: Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls to answer Bible questions, life questions, whatever's on your heart and mine. We will do the best that we can to answer. All you have to do is call us, area code 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. That's a great way to communicate with us. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit call now and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, this is our next to the last live program of the year. Unless Jesus comes back tonight or Saturday or Sunday, we're going to be here live on Monday. We will not be live on Tuesday on the holiday. That will be a recorded broadcast. But for now, believe it or not, only two more, including this one, two more live programs in 2018. Paul and I were talking again this morning about how fast time flies. I hope you're having a great um finishing a good year, but going to have a better year next year. Uh, My message tonight in our Friday night Bible study is going to be a New Year's message, uh, 10 things. that will help you make sure that 2019 uh, is your most Jesus year ever. And that's really all we ever want for you. So um, tune in. You can watch it at CalvarySA.com at 7 o'clock. Or we don't have huge crowds here on Friday night, so there's plenty of room. We'd love to have you come and join us. Uh, Let me get to questions. We've had some really good questions sent in today, so let me start with these. Here is the first question from our mobile app from Lewis. He says, would you please explain the curse of Jeconiah? and how the curse, when looking at Jesus' genealogy, seems to invalidate Jesus' right to the throne of David. Now, Lewis says in parentheses, I know it doesn't, but I've never heard of this before. I'm full of questions. Um, the curse of Jeconiah, Jehoiachin is, is the name that I always grew up with um, in the King James. Uh, it was a curse on an evil king, a king who did things that he knew he shouldn't do, um, but did them nonetheless. Uh, And the curse of Jeconiah is um, found in Jeremiah chapter 22. Um, The Lord likens the king to a signet ring on God's hand, a ring that God's going to pull off. That's in verse 24. And then God pronounces the curse. Here's the curse. Record this man is, if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. Um... Probably you got your answer on the website GotQuestions because they say the problem is that the curse of Jeconiah seems to invalidate Jesus' right to the throne of God. Now, I like GotQuestions.com, so don't get me wrong. But uh, I think the answer here, uh, Lewis, is really, really very straightforward. In Matthew, what we have is the family line of Joseph. And since Jesus wasn't really Joseph's son, he wasn't invalidated. Um, on the Got Questions website, there are a couple other possible solutions. Um, uh, I think the one that seems to make the most sense is that God reversed the curse on Jeconiah's family. Um, uh, based on rabbinic sources that teach it, Jeconiah repented in Babylon that God forgave him and lifted the curse. But we have no way of knowing that. I think it's really simple. Um, Mary was Jesus' mother, but Joseph was not his father, and since the line the was trained uh, genealogy rather was was traced through the father, um, then the the real father of Jesus, of course, we know was God. So uh I believe that the curse of Jeconiah was still in effect, is still in effect, and I believe uh further that um the two different genealogies explain that very thing. So, Lewis, I hope that helps answer your question. Um, three four zero ninety is a question from Michael from our email inbox. It's a little bit long, so uh, it says, good day to you, sir, and I hope you and Paul are doing well. I have a question in regard to ending certain relationships after I gave my life to Jesus Christ, especially around the holidays. I get asked by my wife and others as to why I don't visit old friends and even family members during the holiday, especially during Christmas. My answer is that I always associate those relationships to my old life. And since they still participate in drug use and taking the Lord's name in vain, um, like it's nothing, I choose to burn those bridges, uh, but only for my betterment and my opinion. I always get the same response in that they feel my attitude is not very caring or loving, and I should love others no matter what they do and should always visit. I admit I no longer have any friends because all my friends do drugs, and I get picked on uh, about not having friends, uh, and it comes off as judgmental and snobbish. I feel that any new friends will be brought into my life by Jesus through prayer as I choose my friend. chose my friends poorly in the past and cannot rely on my own judgment. I apologize for rambling, but I need your opinion on me burning bridges, even with my family and friends. Is that family and friends rather? Is that really the Christian thing to do? As I feel it is. Maybe when I'm stronger, I can share my experience, but not until uh, then, as temptation is always lurking. Pastor, pray for you at Paul and Calvary Chapel every day, and that our Heavenly Father will continue to smile upon you. Michael, thank you very much, and he signs the letter respectfully. Michael has written questions into us before. And he's always respectful. A couple of things that immediately jump out. When we get saved, Michael, the purpose of us being saved and being left here by God is to win the hearts of others. So it's true we need to love them. Now, we don't love them by participating in the things that they do. We love them by being a light in the middle of their darkness. And by definition, that requires that we have Um, um, some sort of interaction. Now, uh, the, the key part of your email was that you still feel tempted by these things and only you know what you can stand and can't stand. But the idea for you is to win their hearts. So first and foremost, you need to be praying for these people all the time. God will put a burden on your heart for them. And when he does, it'll change the way you feel about them. You'll want to be with them. You'll want to get them saved. And by you just removing yourself from their lives, again, not participating in their sinful behavior, certainly not participating in their ungodly talk, but staying in touch with them and letting them know, and more importantly, letting them see the difference that God has made in your life. Now here's what happened to me. and I was in very much the same situation as you were in, Michael. Uh, Mine, it wasn't so much uh, uh, people doing drugs, that wasn't the crowd that I hung with, but mine was people that were gambling. And I got to a point where the gambling and the the, the associated language with it was so unbearable that I just let them know that, guys, if you ever want to talk to me, I'm available, but I'm, I'm simply not going to be doing this anymore. Because as a new Christian, this kind of behavior, this kind of talk, uh, really, really grieves my heart. And you're right, they made fun of me a little bit, but you know what? If that's the worst thing that happens to us, Michael, we're going to be okay. Now, the other thing that really sticks out, two other things, actually. Your your, your wife is encouraging you to get involved with them. Um, we talked about this at our church, because with the Christmas holidays, Lots of people are going to go home and be with family that perhaps they'd rather not be with. Certainly going to be in ungodly circumstances, and they need to be prayerfully prepared for that. I think it's too much as Christians. We're not prudes. We live in this world. We're not of the world, but we live in the world. We shouldn't be shocked when unbelievers act like unbelievers, when they talk like unbelievers. But our presence among them, Michael can be such a powerful statement that the Holy Spirit will use us to win their hearts. And remember, these are people that you care about. So just disassociating yourself completely from them is probably not the most loving thing to do. Remember, just don't participate. Be different and share Jesus. Now, here's what will probably happen, Michael. As you go spend time with them, You tell them about Jesus. You're you're taking Jesus with you to these family celebrations or these times with your old friends, the get-togethers. They're going to exclude you pretty soon, or they're going to get saved. And if they exclude you, then you don't have to feel guilty. You're not being judgmental. Certainly you can't be judged as being snobbish. Just saying, you know, guys, when I come, Jesus is coming. I'd love to see you. But you need to know Jesus is coming. It's really, really important. The last thing that sticks out, Michael, is as you say, I have no friends. I want to encourage you in the strongest possible terms to find new friends in Christ. You do that at your church. Wherever it is you go, you get involved in ministry, you get involved in small groups, you find people that you can serve with and talk with about Jesus. Um, people you can go to lunch with after church and talk about the message, what God is doing in your life, in your heart, and get your wife involved as well so that she sees being a Christian is fun. Now, you don't say in your email, Michael, whether or not your your wife is a a believer or not, but she should be first and foremost on your prayer list. So she doesn't need to see a sullen husband. She needs to see a husband who's filled with the joy of the Lord, a husband who's fun, a husband who, who is alive and who actually enjoys his life. And God will use you to win her heart. Now, if she is a believer, well, then it's even more important that the two of you get involved in your church. Get involved with other people. Take a step of faith. Be vulnerable to others. Get to know them and find out what, um, you know, how you can be a blessing to them, how they can be a blessing to you. It's really important that you don't go through this alone. And we never, ever want to give the impression that, you know, somehow our life is just not fun anymore because of Jesus. So um, it's not a matter of burning bridges. Let them burn the bridges, and they will, if they don't want anything to do with your Jesus. But remember Being a Christian is a completely transformed life. And you're going to hang around people, Michael, that perhaps you never would have spent time with before. I'll close with this. We had a funny situation a few years ago. Uh, Two young men, when I say young, they were in their uh, mid-twenties. And the same week they both got saved. Now, we have multiple services here, so one didn't know the other one who was saved, and, and the reverse was true. So um, one day they ran into each other. They, they happened to be at the same service on a Sunday. Now, these two guys were members of a gang, different gangs. They were always fighting with one another. These two men had a rivalry. They hated one another, and suddenly now they're looking at each other in church. Well, those two guys began serving the Lord and became really, really good friends when they had the commonality of Jesus Christ. So, Michael, I hope that gives you a little bit of encouragement and direction. But please don't try to do this Christian walk all alone. Here is a question from our email inbox from Chip. Uh, Two questions related to your sermon on Sunday. I did a Christmas message, by the way, on Sunday out of Luke chapter 2. He says, why is there a time frame change in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 and 24, to establish the fact that Jerry, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem? Additionally, it caught me off guard to think about how Jewish society held shepherds in such contempt, uh, kept them as outcasts, considering uh, them unclean, uh, even though the shepherds themselves watched over and provided a key, an essential part of their faith. They provided unblemished animals necessary to be sacrificed before God. And they loved David, the king, who himself was a shepherd. That, in a way, seems to be the height of hypocrisy. Chip, let me answer the last part first. Um, Shepherds were, they were were shepherds of the temple sheep. They were hirelings. Uh, these weren't uh, devout Jews at all. They weren't at all interested in the worship concept. They were they were outlaws basically and, and nobody wanted anything to do with them. I said they were the gypsies of their day. Uh and people, good people, held them in contempt. It had nothing to do with the the the, the religion or the lack of religion they practised. It had everything to do with the kind of men they were and the lives they lived. That's what makes it so staggering that The the angel appeared to shepherds. It just shows you how far down God would go to to save people. He went that far down to save me. So that's the reason. The the other question, uh, Chip, about um, the, the time difference. I said in my Bible study that day that... Let me find Luke 2. It says, verse 21 says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he'd been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law, of Moses had been completed. That's the key. Joseph Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him in to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be considered uh, consecrated to the Lord. Um, and to offer sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Um, when you get there to verse twenty-two and twenty-four, um, it's it's not on the eighth day. We know that the time of their purification from Leviticus. I think it's chapter twelve, but I'm not sure. Um, um, Leviticus says that uh, it was thirty-three days when their cleansing of of the blood for for both husband and wife. Uh, having had a newborn baby, had been completed, then they would go in. Uh, but then in the passage of Scripture, uh, in verse 25, it goes back to the eighth day when he was being circumcised by the man that we know as Simeon. So uh, verses 22 to 24 were just an explanation of, of why they were there, and then the process, according to Leviticus, and they would have kept the law perfectly, of course, in this instance, and they would have done that. So I hope that helps. It's Leviticus 12. I was right about that. So Leviticus 12, it talks about circumcising them on the eighth day, uh, but also, I think it's two verses later, completing the the, um, the ritual of of being cleansed from the blood of having a new baby. So I hope that helps. Chip, thank you very much. Good question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our mobile app from Nacho. It says, uh, is Psalm 149 a prophecy about both the Jews and Christians, the reference to the saints in verse 5? Uh, as you pointed out in your email, Nacho, uh, verse 2 references Israel. But one of the things you have to understand about reading the Old Testament is their concept of sainthood. Uh, unlike ours, you know, we know the saints are all who are born again. Not a special class of of Christian, uh, not who the Catholic Church says is saints, not people that do. But but all of us, having been born again and cleansed by the blood of Jesus, we're all saints. Paul writes over and over to the saints in Philippi, to the saints in Ephesus. He's writing to everybody who's born again. In the Old Testament, however, and Daniel is actually a better gauge of, of this. He talks in his prayers for the saints, but, but Jews would have no concept of the church. So they're understanding that the saints, the called out of God, were Jews by birth. So this isn't a reference in Psalm 149 to both Jews and Christians uh, because they have no understanding of uh, the new covenant or that Gentiles, under any circumstances, could ever have any part of the kingdom of God. Thank you. I appreciate that, Nacho. Here is a question from our email inbox. This one comes from Kirby. Is there an explanation of Daniel 8, 26? Was Daniel's reaction and exhaustion in, in verse 27 due to that, or is it due to the earlier prophecy in verse 13 and 14? Uh, Daniel, Kirby, is one of my favorite uh, books. I, I just absolutely love the prophecies. It's an amazing thing. Daniel in verse 27 says, I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Now, the explanation is that he was overwhelmed, the word appalled. He was completely undone by the vision. By the way, this happens to Daniel again in at the end of chapter 9 into chapter 10 when he has the vision of the end times. Now, Daniel was appalled. He was exhausted because that's what grief does to us. It means that Daniel had the same questions that, we have when we see horrible things. In this case, it's the, the revelation of the, the, the Antichrist. Why would God allow such an evil man to prosper? Why would God allow his people to suffer so? Why is God waiting? Why doesn't he fix this now? Well, those are the questions that we have. And Daniel was so overwhelmed by the appearance of Gabriel, by the depth and the despair of the vision he received, that all he could do was lie down, He had no other strength. So it's really important. This vision is absolutely overwhelming. And it's one of those visions that Daniel saw. He was told, by the way, to seal up the vision because the the time was not yet right. And in sealing up the vision, it just meant that there was a whole lot more that was still to come. So I, I hope that helps a little bit, um, Kirby. Just We can't even begin to understand how Daniel would have felt. One other thing, and I mentioned this in another context in the study this past Saturday about the appearance of the angel. You know, to see angels is an awesome, terrifying thing. So what we need to do is have uh, an understanding that, that our picture of little flubby, chubby uh, angels floating around is certainly not appropriate. So I hope that helps. Let's go to line one and talk with Jacob on line one from San Antonio. Jacob, thanks a lot. You're on the air.
3: Yeah, hello, uh, I'm Pastor Ar- Arbaugh. I, I know you know who I am and I apologize. I don't listen very often, but I happen to be listening. And, I, and in no way am I contradicting any of your theology, but I, the only thing that breaks my heart And I'm not angry about it. What breaks my heart is when you get some things wrong. Shepherds among the Jews have always been the most idolized profession because it symbolizes even what the Jews are told to do and what the Messiah is supposed to do. And so when I hear that, what troubles me is there are people that don't read and they don't study very much, but they may listen to things. And I know you're a decent man. I know your wife's a decent person. And I'm not criticizing. I'm not angry. The only reason I'm calling—I never thought I'd be calling again. But I do want to uh, just say that you know those questions, those statements—they are so in error. I just wanted to do the courtesy and call, and I even explained to your uh, your call receptioner uh, who I was, so I wouldn't put you in an off
2: spot.
3: So I do want to say that that is incorrect. And I just wanted to say that, and thank you for being so kind to speak
2: to me. Okay, Jacob, thank you very, very much. Uh, I, I, I really don't know who Jacob is, so I'm, um, I'm a little caught off guard by him saying that I do. Uh, however, let me say this. There is so much scholarship uh, about how Jews viewed the shepherds of their day. Now, certainly because of the other question, David was a shepherd king and shepherds were not bad. Pagan peoples resented shepherds and hated them, especially Egyptians. But remember, Jewish people over the years became more and more like the pagans. And uh, the the shepherds of Jesus's day were not the kind of shepherds that were revered by anybody. Uh, they were, and I'll stand by my, my statement and the scholarship, they were, they were, uh, the outcasts of society. Nobody wanted anything to do with shepherds in Jesus' day, especially the shepherds that were given uh, the hirelings that were given um, stock over the um, temple sheep offerings. Um, Jacob, if you're still listening, one thing I, I let me recommend some some something for you to read. There is a wonderful book, and in fact, there's a series of them by a man named Alfred Edersheim, um, E-D-E-R-S-H-E-I-M, that that talks about the customs, um, the situations uh, in and around Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, um, during the time he was ministering and beyond. Uh, And Edersheim is a noted expert. Now, he's with the Lord now, um, a Messianic Jew, um, but... um, Let me recommend to you The Life and Times of the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim, Um, And um, perhaps if you're open to honest scholarship, you'll change your perspective. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question. Let me take that one after the break. I think it might take a couple more minutes. Uh, Donald says, this one I'll go to instead. I think we're saved by faith and works. Because of what James says, how can you say we are saved by faith alone? Um, Donald, works are not a means of salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. The faith, not even your own, it's the gift of God. And and the reason is that no man can boast. The, The man that says, well, my faith combined with works is what saved me is boasting, in fact. And so uh, what, what you have to understand about James' passage is that works are not a means of salvation, but a result of salvation. James says, show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by what I do. And his comment is that he is showing his faith in the transformed life that he has. So works are not a means of salvation, but works are always a result of genuine salvation. We have thirty minutes left in the week. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls, or toll free and calls at eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. We'll be back on the other side of the break. See you in two.
0: To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877 87-630-KSLR. Now here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the program, 340-9585. Let's finish uh, the Friday show with some phone calls and questions. Here is a question that was sent in via email anonymously. Um, I know I'm called to be a worship leader. I told my pastor. And he won't give me the opportunity yet. Should I change churches? Anonymous, no, 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 a thousand times no. You know, and and this is just by way of explanation. Pastors have people come to us all the time and tell us what God has called them to do. Our job is to help people fulfill that vision, to use the gifts that God has given them. But too often, it seems the case with you, that people are unwilling to be patient especially for a public ministry like a worship leader. I knew my, my current worship pastor, I watched him serve selflessly for probably close to three years before I ever gave him the opportunity to lead the ministry. Why? Because he needed to prove himself. I don't mean prove himself as a worship leader. I knew he could sing and play guitar. But to prove himself as a servant, you see, the worship leader in a church needs to be one of the head servants. He is usually, or she is in some cases, the, the second most public figure in a church, the pastor, of course, being the first. So uh, my worship pastor is sort of the, 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 the second face of our church, the, the, the one that people will see. I want the people who see him on stage, I want them to know, his heart, I want them to know that he's proven himself. The only way that happens is with time. It's not enough to be able to play guitar. There's a million people who play guitar and sing or a piano. But the heart to serve, the heart to love the people that you're worshiping with or that you're leading into worship is more important than I can possibly imagine. You know, a lot of churches, Anonymous, have uh, problems with worship leaders They're creative, they're artsy, they want to do things their way. Um, A servant doesn't have those kind of problems. So here's what I would counsel you to do. Stay there and prove yourself to be a servant. Let your pastor know that he can count on you. Be available to be used. And when he comes to you one day and says, you know what, you want to worship? How about doing it in children's ministry? Do it, do it with joy. These are times when we're being tested by the Lord. And for me, I'd much rather have a worship leader whose heart is right than a worship leader who is good. Now, fortunately, I have both. But the man that currently serves in that position here at Calvary Chapel is a man who's proven himself. It's not enough just to have a calling. It would be like me walking into another church and visiting on Sunday and saying, "Um, you know, I don't like... Uh, the message, so I I think I could be a better Bible teacher than you or a better pastor. I would never do that. That's not the church God's called me to. In your case, God's called you to this church. Stay there and prove faithful and trust that God will provide an opportunity. If that's what you're called to do, great, but it can't ever be about you. Sometimes people that want to be on stage or people that want to be in positions of authority want it just a little too much. So let the work of God humble you and prepare you. And one day you're going to find yourself right where you're supposed to be. And you don't want to miss out on that. hope that helps. That usually frustrates people, but especially if you're young, give God a chance. Mickey wants me to, he says, please comment on social justice issues and why churches don't do more to make this world better. Mickey, our job is to make people more like Jesus. Our job isn't to impact the world. Our job is to equip people so they can impact the world. Now, I hope that makes sense to you. Let me explain. Uh, I proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, we teach verse by verse through the Bible. People get saved. As they get saved and surrender their heart to Jesus, God gives them gifts, and he puts burdens on their heart. Just one example, and the audience here has heard this a lot, but we have a free doctor's office, family practice doctor's office here at Calvary Chapel, Um, a thriving ministry where people are getting saved all the time. Well, I didn't set about to change the world of medicine. You know, we need health care for everybody. That's a social justice issue. All I did was proclaim the gospel. God touched two doctors' hearts, husband and wife, in our church. He put the same burden in their heart that he put on my heart regarding doing this ministry. And in the process, we have dispensed a whole bunch of social justice. So please understand, Mickey, it's not church's job to change the world. It's the church's job to change people. Jesus is now dealing not with issues, not with nations, not with the world. Jesus, in this dispensation of grace, is dealing with individual people. And when we surrender our hearts to him, then God does amazing things. And there's a whole bunch of social justice-type issues that uh, our church is involved in simply because God put those burdens on our heart. Um, but if we set out to change the world, then what are we going to do? I'd also ask you, Mickey, when you make a question like this or a comment like this, what would you have churches do? Give money. There's not enough money to change the world to make the world better. But when we move people's hearts when we change their lives then God is free to move them anywhere and everywhere and when God equips people and sends people he sends them with the supernatural power of God and then ordinary people can do extraordinary things social justice which is by the way redundant justice is just justice We're not going to make this world like heaven. Heaven is what comes after this world. Our job is to try to save as many people in the world as we possibly can. So Mickey, what would you have churches do? What's the practical application? Then I would ask one of the questions, what are you doing? And don't tell me you're recycling, because that's not social justice. Don't tell me that you care about sex slaves. Because if you really cared, you'd have to go out and do something about it. Here's what you do. You get sold out for Jesus Christ and let him do what you were born to do. And that'll change. Here's a tough question. I held this one intentionally. I've had it for a few days because I I didn't want a bunch of phone calls about it. But it's anonymous. It says, how can Christians support Trump? They're the worst kind of hypocrites. (laughs) Well, um, you know, a Christian supporting anybody is a hypocrite. Because there's no candidate, Anonymous, that is, is, is carrying our banner. It's just that simple. Are there Christians who support Trump? Yes. Are there Christians who support the Democrats? Yes. But there's all kinds of issues and hypocrisies. Let me tell you something about our president. First, as Christians, we're supposed to pray for him. That's how I support Trump. We're supposed to pray for him. I want him to get saved. I really hope that the world will see this man get saved radically and transform to to such a degree that they can see how darkness is turned into light. Now, in fairness, what I see is Christians who overlook Trump's obvious sins. And that's wrong and that is hypocritical. A lot of the same Christians were quick to point a finger at Barack Obama for killing babies, for legislating gay marriage, and of course whatever the government endorses increases exponentially, and I think President Obama is the most immoral president in our history. He's caused more people to stumble and walk with a smile on their face into a sinful life that will condemn them to hell. And yet, There're still people who support him called Christians. So what we have to do is be truth tellers. If you support Trump's policies, then it is incumbent upon you to point out his deficiencies and call him on them when they're public. His behavior is shameful. His lack of respect for the office is embarrassing. Given the choices we had personally, am I glad he was elected rather than the other? The answer is yes. But at the same time, um, be careful who you support vocally because they're going to end up embarrassing you. And uh, we Christians ought to be the most objective of all people. And again, anonymous, praying for them. If you're a Christian, you're listening to this program, so I assume you are then your job is to pray for him rather than to judge him. You can point out the things that he's doing wrong, and I just said you should, but pray for him. Really, really letting God, through your prayers, change your heart so that you want him in heaven as well. Here is a question from Fred. He says, Pastor Ron, is prayer ever a chore for you? Of course, Fred, prayer is a a chore. It's a chore for all of us. But what I do in my life, Fred, is try to make prayer such a normal uh, part of my daily life, talking to Jesus, that's all it is, so that my life seems to be absent something, missing something Mm -hmm. when I'm not praying. So yes, prayer can be a chore. There are times when we don't feel like praying. There are times when the world is seemingly crashing down on us. But those are the times we need to pray the most. Prayer is often a sacrifice. And so what we need to do, Fred, is press in and keep praying. Don't grow weary of praying. Let's go to Harold on line one from San Antonio. Harold, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Harold, are you there? I guess we lost Harold. Uh, Latrice wants to know, Um, The Bible says sin came in the world by one man, but it was Eve who sinned first. So why isn't sin attributed to her? Um, The sin nature, our sin nature, Latrice, came from the man, the seed of the man um, um, that passes through the man. that's why um, um, while Mary was a human mother, Jesus couldn't have a human father because he would have inherited the sin nature. So sin was attributed to Adam. Now, remember, Adam was created first. Eve created from Adam. It was Adam's job to communicate uh, accurately, represent God correctly to her. And in this particular case, uh, it was God uh, who told Adam not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do it, surely going to die. Adam, who should have been protecting Eve, should have kept her away from that tree. So the, the sin is past us in nature's past through the man and not through the woman. So that's why uh, I think we've got Harold back on the line. So Harold, thanks for calling back. You're on the air.
1: Hi, Pastor Ron. Yeah, this is Harold. I'm sorry. I had the phone and I dropped it in my lap and uh, <laughs> I, managed, I must have hit the off button. But and so I started out with, you know, how was Christmas and everything and at, and our side, actually, there's always some kind of struggle with some family incident and friends. It's just, it's supposed to be happier than what it is, but I guess it isn't. But anyway, I have a, a question. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, uh, when Mary was, was I mean, when Joseph was concerned about Mary, and Mary or not, or let's just say the mother of Jesus for sure, Mm-hmm. It's, you know, where it says, uh, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do you not be afraid, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because conceived of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, son of David, I don't understand how Joseph, son of David, uh, I don't have to understand it, it's just something I was reading the Bible here, I'm <laughs> I'm sitting here in yeah. my mother's house, and it's actually the international version. I don't, should, yep. I don't know. I guess we don't have a King James version here.
2: Yeah, it says the same thing. It says, uh, uh, it, but the son of David simply means he's he's in the lineage of David. He's an ancestor of King David. And uh, the first question we had today was about the curse of Jeconiah, and Joseph came from David's line through Jeconiah. Doesn't mean he was I a son. I the first part. Yeah, uh, it doesn't mean that David was, uh, or that David was his father in the natural, but it just means that he was a descendant of the line of David. So that's how he was addressing him, and Joseph, as a Jew, now this is important, Harold. Joseph, as mm-hmm. a Jew, would have understood that the the Messiah, the Christ, would have to come from the lineage of David. So both it, Joseph it being in that line,
1: mm-hmm. it does make right? sense, uh-huh. but was Joseph supposed to be a king was he in line of a king you yeah, know I do do some bible study and stuff and I was just thinking I, I don't I I guess I'm hard-headed I just don't understand why it would be phrased that way I mean I heard what you said but mm-hmm. I just don't know why the writers what point are they trying to make I mean if you hadn't have told me that I wouldn't have known it yeah I, I well the uh, up, you
2: know yeah the 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 angel's point today to Joseph was 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 uh uh, her her son is conceived by the Holy Spirit, and uh, what what he's saying is he, this is going to be the Son of God, and the reference there to to Joseph, son of David, um, would simply be reinforcing what Joseph already knew as an observant Jew, that the Christ would come from the line of David. So this was just sort of uh, validation. It's not the writer. Remember, this is the angel. Uh, Gabriel, who's appearing to him and saying, I know you're afraid. I know you're, you don't want to expose her to public disgrace. Uh, you want to divorce her quietly. And after considering this, the angel brought the answer from heaven, and that's exactly what uh, Joseph did. So it, it's this, the son of David simply means he's a descendant of David, and, of course, that would be a requirement for, for the Christ. He wouldn't be worried about the curse of Jeconiah or anything else, Harold. But um, he would understand that that's what it's for. It's 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 Gabriel saying, "Don't worry about this." Mary's who you yeah. thought she was, and she's the girl like that, that, angel stuff. that you love. with. Yeah, you know, I do too.
1: You know, like for instance, just one more. I, I don't. I'm mean, I think it's in Luke. I was looking at it last night, where uh, Satan was tempting Jesus, and man should not live by bread alone. Somewhere along those lines, and then an angel of the Lord. I think rescued Jesus or comforted Jesus and then that, that so, something like that. Yeah. Well, I'll read yep. it again, but I, I like all this angel interference, maybe, or not interference, <laughs> but,
2: uh,
1: assistance, put it that way.
2: assist. Yeah. Ascendance, assistance for assistants. sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah. For Thank you, Harold. Me. Yeah. All you right, know that, ahead. the the, the episode Harold was referring to was in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was, um, 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 physically um, at, at his end. He was sweating great drops of blood, sort of the body's last gasp ever to hydrate itself. And and the inference is clear that Jesus' body physically wouldn't have survived had an angel not come and ministered to him. So um, you're right about that, Harold. The, the angels are, are marvelous. 340-9585, something I intended to say at the beginning of the program that uh, that I want to share now. Alan called yesterday on the program, um, and uh, Alan, thank you for calling yesterday. But what I didn't know until today, Alan, is that, um, and I'd like the audience to know simply so they can pray for you, is the day before, I guess it was, uh, Alan's wife died, and uh, he called yesterday. He didn't say anything about it, didn't ask for prayer or anything but Alan, our hearts and our prayers are with you, and may the Lord of all comfort comfort you in your pain and in your grief. I know that this has been a long, um, at times very painful ordeal for you, and brother, we are are uh, we're here for you if you need anything at all. So thank you for calling us yesterday. Here is a question from Jason: Are tattoos sinful? Um, Sinful tattoos are sinful, Jason, but but tattoos generally are not. Uh, every time I get this question, somebody's going to write me and say, "Leviticus 19 says don't tattoo your body." Leviticus 19 was the law written to Israel, and it was always in the the context of 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 worshiping the dead, cutting themselves, marking their bodies for the worship of the dead. Tattoo is just the unfortunate English word that's used. Uh, by some of the translators. Um, So there's nothing sinful about body art. Um, I I think, as I always say, Jason, that that before anybody does anything permanent, this is something that needs to be considered prayerfully. We need to examine our motives. We truly need to know why we're doing it and what we're doing. Now, if it's just to look good, there's nothing inherently sinful about that. But Christians, we need to... Um, take these matters before the Lord. Anything not of faith is sin, Romans fourteen twenty three says. So uh, if we will simply take these matters to the Lord, if he gives you a clear conscience to do it, then it's okay to do it. But uh, in and of themselves, tattoos are not sinful. Um, I have a son who is uh, really heavily tatted. He's the, the, the Christian, uh, and he's extremely remorseful for the tattoos that he got. Now, the tattoos in and of themselves, I said, are bad, but his are sinful tattoos. So he's had to cover some up, and uh, he uses the others sort of to testify about the change that God has done in his life. But, um, Jason, if you are an adult, you're free to make up your own mind. Just do it with prayer. What is the motive? One of the things I do tell my pastors here Because our guys are young, and to me, anybody younger than me is young. But uh, these are millennials who, uh, some of them are, are pretty heavily tatted. And all I tell them as pastors, before they go out and get new ones, they better consider that every tattoo that you get that is sort of considered by normal people over the top, every tattoo decreases your ability to minister to someone. And as Christians, we want to be able to minister to everyone, excluding nobody. So um, we need to think more about sacrifice than satisfying. Hope that makes sense. Here's a question from Greg. He says, will people living in the millennium in physical bodies die, or will they live the entire 1,000 years? Um, Greg, we we don't know exactly whether or not they're going to live, but Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20 says, of the millennium, never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fall, fails to reach hundred will be considered accursed. So the idea is sort of like it was in the very beginning: people are going to live uh, extended periods of time. Remember, it's a redeemed earth, um, not not completely new, but redeemed. Um, people are going to live a very, very long time. And the idea is that, yes, people are going to die. Some are going to die as an act of judgment. We know that there's going to be rebellion against Jesus in the, in the millennium. Uh, those people will be judged swiftly and surely. We'll have a part in that in some way that, that we're not given an explanation for. So he who fails to reach 100 will be considered a curse. We'll know that that person's been, been, been uh, judged by God. Um, but but Isaiah 65 indicates people are going to die, but they're not going to die young. Think about that. They're not going to die young, and uh, that's because things are going to be made brand new. How am I doing on time? Just a little over a minute. Let me see if I have a very quick question. Um, Frank says, is Matthew 16:28 a false prophecy by Jesus? Uh, In that verse it says, I tell you the truth, this is Jesus speaking, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Frank, not a false prophecy, couldn't be a false prophecy by Jesus because Jesus can't lie, but in in the gospel accounts where that line is stated, uh, I'm doing it in Luke, I don't think this week, but the next week, maybe it's this week, um, 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 this statement is followed by the story about the transfiguration. So what he's saying, and he's referring specifically to Peter, James, and John, uh, some who are hearing me right now are not going to die before they see the kingdom of God. And that kingdom of God is when Jesus comes or is transfigured before their very eyes. So that's a, just a short-term memory of Jesus can't falsely prophesy. Hey, thanks for the phone calls. I appreciate um, the questions. You've been listening to the word to stand on for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Go to Church Sunday and be a blessing to somebody. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com.